to Quilt Jigget's Market Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into topics and trends that we've been exploring for you here at Quilt Jigget. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you're listening on or by following hashtag QC weekly comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Jack Bishop, investment manager based in our Manchester office. And this week, I'm pleased to be joined by regular podcast guest, Richard Carter, uh, head of fixed interest research, and Tom Gilby, one of our equity research analysts. Good morning to you both. Richard, if I could begin with you, uh, towards the back end of last week, we had the local council elections, uh, kind of seen as a litmus test, if you like, for the next general election. And the results, I think, um, to the uh, I think it's always been quite pleased about were buried um, beneath the King's coronation coverage over the weekend. So um, could you just give us a sense of how things um, panned out and what the results could mean for the future of political landscape and are, can we extrapolate them uh, for a general election? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you always got to take local election results a little bit with a pinch of salt because it sometimes depends on exactly where they're being fought. They weren't being fought over the country, uh, all over the country. And, and often you see a bit of a protest vote in certain areas and it's not, you know, you can't always extrapolate it one for one for, for the general election. I, I think I think we can we can say safely say that it was a pretty bad day for, for the Tories, uh, you know, lost a lot of councillors and probably even worse than their sort of expectations or or the press's expectations but um it doesn't it doesn't mean that labor is necessarily on course you know for certain to win a majority in a general election whenever that's going to be it's probably still at least i would say 15 months away i think what we're going to what we're going to see and what the kind of results suggested is that there's a good chance of um of a hung parliament which is why there's now this focus on you know labor and liberal democrats are they going to go for some sort of arrangement are they going to end up in a coalition uh, and what that might that mean so i think it's kind of all still to play for um i think we've seen you know um even you know, on a sort of balanced political view some sort of successes for rishi sunak certainly compared to his predecessors recently so it's still all to play for he'll still be hoping he can he can you know win back enough votes to stay in power uh, but as things stand it looks like he's going to be as i say a lot of this focus on uh, will Labour require a coalition, and and who and how's that going to work? Yeah, very interesting. You stole my next point, which was about the actual uh, potential coalition between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. But um, yeah, I guess we'll wait and see uh, in the next year or so. Um, central bank decisions, Richard. So we've had last week the Fed raise rates again by another twenty five basis points, which was as expected. And the feeling amongst markets is probably they are at the end of their rate hiking cycle. So we contrast that to ECB um, and the Bank of England, who we'll hear from uh, later this week. Um, so why is there that disparity across the Atlantic? You've got the Fed that looks to be done, but in the ECB and the Bank of England is still kind of uh, in the midst of their rate hiking cycle. So um, where does that leave us? And then do you think the rate, um, rate cuts are likely now towards the back end of this year? for the US more so? Yeah, there is a bit of disparity um, in terms of, I guess, timing and the, and the sort of where we are on the cycle of the different central banks. But I, I would say that they're still kind of moving in the same direction. They're still trying to get inflation under control. The, the, the bit of disparity is that, you know, the Fed started a little bit earlier than the other two. Uh, inflation's come down a bit more in the, in the US than it has in, in Europe and UK, partly because of the way the energy 
market works uh, over there. And then also, obviously, we've had this, you know, these issues with the US uh, banking sector that's um, starting to make people think, okay, and enough is enough, you know, the Fed needs to just stop now. Uh, whereas we haven't really seen that in the UK and Europe to, to the same extent. So um, there's a little bit more work for the Bank of England and ECB to, to get, you know, to do, but I think we're getting there as far as they're concerned and, and, and they'll be pausing uh, pretty soon. Obviously, you know, Bank of England like to, to raise rates, um, uh, you know, this week. Um, in terms of, you know, are we on course for cuts later in the year? Uh, we, we may be, but it, it's still very early. The market seems to have gone away from, you know, worrying about rate hikes to now think about rate cuts. We'll wait and see. I think um, it depends a lot on what happens with the, the situation and banks in the US. If that's all calm, then the Fed's probably going to be on hold for an extended period, I expect. But I think, it'll, you know, to see them cutting rates for the next three or four months, you'll probably need some pretty bad news on the economy. So let's hope we, you know, let's hope we don't actually see that. Yeah, agreed. And just finally, um, for you, Richard, uh, the debt ceiling discussions in the US. So Biden met with um, leaders of Congress yesterday. Um, so he had a bill passed by the House narrowly um, from McCarthy, um, but unlikely to get anywhere in the Senate. Um, and there's also been talk of invoking the 14th Amendment to overrule the debt ceiling law. So is this deja vu all over again or... Are we at risk of having a repeat of something like the 2011 debt crisis where um, the US's credit rating got downgraded? People will be forgiven for saying, I've heard this a million times before, I'm not going to worry about it. And probably they'll turn out to be uh, right, because we have heard this, as I say, we've heard it many times before. Um, the slight difference now is that, uh, you know, that the political situation is pretty fraught. You've got a divided Congress. Uh, and you've got various different factions of the Republicans who might not all be able to coalesce around a particular view. And the, and the sort of voting uh, margins are kind of pretty tight in Congress. So you kind of need to keep a lot of people on uh, on board. I mean, I think we've still got, we're still at the sort of shadow boxing kind of grandstanding phase, but it looks like talks are starting in earnest uh, this week. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, all, be, all will be well. Um, I mean, you can see some signs of concern in the, in the bond market because, you know, uh, Treasury bills that mature first week of June are yielding a lot more than the ones yielding uh, maturing at the end of May. So there is some positioning going on around that. Um, but I suspect uh, in the end all will be well. I mean, the problem is if if the if the Treasury does run out of money, then they, they've got to stop spending on sort of things like social security payments and all the rest of it. It will just be an absolute catastrophe uh, for the economy. So I'm sure in the end, uh, sense will prevail, but uh, you know, not without a little bit of nerves and panic before then. Yes, I guess we'll see a bit of drama running up to it. Um, thanks for those thoughts, Richard. Tom, if I could turn to you, uh, Richard did allude to issues in the banking sector. Uh, so one of the consequences, the rapid rise in the in, in interest rates we've seen um, has been the issues arising in the banking sector. So we saw the collapse a couple of months back now of SVB. Um, and then we've had JP Morgan recently acquiring First Republic. Um, so the regional banks have come under pressure and short interest has picked up against a lot of those stocks. So just first of all, to give us some context, when we refer to regional banks in the US, how big are those banks? Are they small niche lenders or are they quite large in comparison? Yeah, so the official definition by the Federal Reserve is banks with assets of 10 to 100 billion 
dollars. But um, when you look at the KPW regional banking index, which um, is seen as really the benchmark for the regional banks, that includes all banks with assets under 250 billion. So that that's probably when you see, see it in the news should be seen as the, the, the amount of assets they own for context. So S, SVP and First Republic both had around 220 billion of assets. And then to compare that to the UK, you have um, NatWest and Standard Charter manage around, this is in dollars, all of this, $850 billion. Lloyd's around a trillion, Barclays 1.8, and then HSBC 3 trillion. So, you know, way, way bigger than... Um, the US regional banks. And that's really due to the kind of consolidation that you've seen um, in all markets other than the US. And just to touch on that, the US have around over 4,000 banks and the UK have around 330. So completely different markets and completely different sizes. That's great, Tom, for that insight. It's quite helpful just to provide a bit of context. And so the issues that we saw at SVB um, are those the same that are faced by some of the others? So we've seen kind of PacWest, KeyCorp, et cetera, come under pressure last week. And what are their kind of uninsured deposit percentages, funding costs, and what deposit outflows been like recently? Yeah, so I think they're, you know, with the banks that have gone under, there, there have been similarities as the high uninsured deposits. You've seen big mark-to-market losses. And that subsequently, you've, you've seen big deposit outflows. Um, in the case of SVP and Signature Bank, which was the second bank to go um, bust, you, you had the Fed uh, release their report and they spoke about how the banks broke their own internal limits. They have very concentrated deposit bases. Um, they also had um, highly concentrated the, the deposits were very concentrated in specific customers so in svp's case it was um in venture capital in signature it was more towards the sort of crypto landscape so they're relatively unique i guess but i i say there are similarities and, and the kind of main problem with this is while whilst there are differences between the banks if you have a deposit run on any bank it's going to cause them problems. You know, First Republic was seen as a high quality bank a year or so ago, but investors now seem to be, you know, looking for who have, who are the next bank, which has either a high uninsured deposits or big mark to market losses. And then, they, then they've gone after them. So they do have slightly higher uninsured deposits, these banks. So I think Zeons and PacWest more have around 65%, and that's versus about 96% uninsured deposits for SVP. So it's lower, but by no means, you know, low. Um, you see differences in the capital ratios. I think actually PacWest has one of the lower ones amongst regional banks. Um, you've, you've seen positively deposit outflow has been relatively stable in say the banks you've mentioned and um that that is one positive but i do think it's kind of self-fulfilling self-fulfilling to be honest for for a bank the moment depositors start to worry and withdraw their deposits you're now having to sell your assets at much lower um prices than they were due to the higher interest rates and that's really causing a problem for the banks so it's kind of a roundabout answer saying they're slightly different, but the main problem is that if someone sees a similarity, even if it's a slight similarity and they start to withdraw their deposits, it, it causes the same outcome. Yeah, I guess you can't get away from that. So what, in your opinion, 
um, needs to or can change to help kind of assuage those fears? So is it more regulation? Is it an increase in the deposit limits? Because um, you've got the risk of moral hazard here. So are there any changes that you think should be or can be made? Yes, I think you've seen one of the big comments has been back in 2018 under Trump legislation was passed, which basically rolled back restrictions and the oversight of banks with less than 250 billion of assets. And, you know, that had SVP say were one of the big proponents and sort of cheerleaders of that happening. So I think lots of the blame and you've seen um, a few people come out and kind of point at this legislation being rolled back as one of the reasons. So I think you'll now see that legislation be reintroduced, but you can't really do that overnight. So that that will be a kind of slow process. And I think you'll see the regional banks um, be under much stricter oversight now as a result of what's happened. Um, I think they will have to ensure the deposits. I'm, I'm unsure to what extent. At the moment, it's up to 250,000. You've seen people talk about 350,000. You know, as you said, there's the moral hazard. Should everything be um, insured by, by the government? Something has to be done because ultimately, you know, the main problem is if there's fear, you will withdraw your money. So they need to kind of stop that fear. So I think there will be in the short term probably some some more protection given to your deposits that, that you know that they are going to be insured and you've also seen that them going to make the larger banks bear the majority of the costs for refilling the deposit insurance funds rather rather than the regional banks because that's also a worry that people think the regional banks are going to have to pay up and then that kind of again causes that that cycle effect where people think oh they don't have the money to do that and then get worried again and withdraw their deposits so i think Longer term, you're going to see the legislation come back in. Shorter term, it has to be the kind of insure, bring up the insurance on the deposits. But I'm hard, hard to say to what extent they do it because there's the real moral hazard aspect to it. Yeah, certainly is. And just finally, uh, we are kind of coming towards the end, if you like, of results season. So we've had a lot of these banks report and on the whole, um, particularly for the larger banks, and they've been quite solid results. Um, and one issue that has been highlighted, though, and again, it touched on your point about trying to stop deposit flows, are having to increase um, rates that are paid on deposits. So Will that mean that as we come into the next few results seasons that bank profit profitability will be significantly less? Yeah, I think that's um, definitely likely to happen. You, you, you saw commentary from some of the banks talking about how they're having to raise their um, the deposit rates so they're offering customers to kind of, I guess, just match what you're seeing in the market right now in sort of money market funds, you can get three, four, five percent that people are actually thinking, you know, why aren't like, why am I only getting one or two percent in my banks? And they're withdrawing money. So banks having to up that uh, to keep their deposits. You've probably seen on the whole more commentary from the UK banks. You, you've seen NatWest and Lloyd's, they were kind of talking about peak um, net interest margin at their at their results which was taken negatively you've probably seen a bit less commentary from the us on this um maybe that's because the banks particularly which we focus on a bit more global so they've got lots of different revenue streams so actually interest rates are more of a driver for some of those uk uk names 
but yeah, it's definitely likely to come under under pressure. I mean, you've seen Apple have released um, are entering the market with Goldman Sachs, and they're offering a four and four point one, four point two percent deposit rate for new customers. So you know, a bank's having to compete against that now. So they're gonna they might not raise it to that, but if it's not close to that, people are going to be thinking, well, why don't I bank with them? So you're definitely likely to see rates start to go up and profitability as a consequence go down. That's great, Tom. Thank you very much for that. And thank you both uh, for those great insights and to all of you for listening. And did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? So we'd love to hear from all of our listeners. So please review and um, wherever you're listening and share it on social media and tag us at Quilts Chiliot. And I am delighted to confirm this podcast and our sister on the fund buyer have both been shortlisted for best podcast for the Investment Marketing and Innovation Awards 2023. Um, the winners will be announced at a special ceremony on Friday the 7th of July. So fingers crossed for Richard, Nick and the team. And to make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button and we'll be back next week. In the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachieviot.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as subscribing to our weekly comment newsletter. And you can stay up to date with all of our thoughts on market news, industry insights and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or on our social media pages. And one thing to mention, our Climate Assets Fund team will be holding a live event in London on the 25th of May, where they'll be joined by singer and environmental campaigner Fergal Sharkey to talk about the path to sustainability. So you can visit our events and webinars page on the Quilt Achieve It website to register. And finally, do you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for the next podcast? Simply ask them via our weekly comments page on our website and we'd love to hear from you. And that's it for today. So thank you to Richard and Tom for both of your times and to all of you for listening. See you next time.